foundation. So we can sort of picture it this way. We're moving from the construct of the church in uh, the first three chapters to the conduct of the church in the last three chapters, okay? Um, Remember, even though the letter's divided into these two parts, they're not separate from each other. We can't just say, okay, this is what we need to believe, and now let's get on to the, to the actual doing. Uh, those things work together. We talked about this last week. What you believe is how you behave, right? Uh, and the gospel must shape both our theology and our practice. And a central theme of, of, of gospel theology and gospel practice, especially in this letter this morning, is, is unity. And unity is going to be this thread that runs all the way throughout the rest of, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, so we need to define what is unity. If there's anything that we need to be getting better and better at, especially as a church, is defining the terms that we use. Okay? And so we need to understand what unity is. It's a state of oneness with others. This is the biblical definition of what Paul is, is uh, saying when he says unity. Specifically in the context of this letter, Paul's talking about Christians being united together with other Christians. But in light of the, of the current discourse in our country, I think that we can all agree that unity is more elusive than we'd like it to be, right? So that's why we need these six verses this morning. So I want to read them. I want to again ask God for help. And then we'll jump in. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you've received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called with one hope. At your calling, excuse me, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in all. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who helps us understand it. We ask for that wisdom to do so this morning. And we pray that even as we hear and, and receive the word about unity, that in doing that together this morning, it would unite us closer together as brothers and sisters in Christ. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it seems like a broken record, but I, it, there's no secret that, it, that our country is, is deeply, deeply divided in many ways right now, right? Um, it's also no secret that many of the things that divide our country are the things that are sowing division in the church, I'm not necessarily talking about the local church here, although I'm sure there's things that we, we would disagree on in this room uh, and, and together here. But um, we need to understand that disunity in the church is not something new, right? It doesn't take 2020 to go, oh man, what happened? It's been around since the formation of the church in the first century, so much so that Paul addresses uh, this, this theme of unity in most of his letters in the New Testament. You can't read a letter from Paul and not get to at least some uh, call to, to grow closer together in Christ uh, and not let conflict uh, separate you. So we, we, need to, we, we, we know this, right? Conflict comes more easily to us than we care to admit it, right? Unity is an ideal, especially that, that we want in the church, but... It doesn't happen naturally. It happens supernaturally. The Spirit provides it, and yet 
as we're going to see in our passage this morning, we are called to maintain it. And immediately we're thinking, how does this work? If the Spirit gives us to it, what do we, what's the work we have to do? We're going to get to that, okay? This is our idea, though, this morning. Because we're united to Christ through the Spirit, we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit with one another. This is straight from, from Paul's uh, letter here. And this morning we're going to see that we do that by devoting ourselves to the purpose of unity, by pursuing the postures that maintain unity, and by focusing on the essentials that unify us. And so we need to devote ourselves first to the purpose of unity. Look at verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. Now, I read that. And when I do, my mind immediately wants to convince me that I need to prove myself worthy to have what I've been given. Anybody there? Right? That's sort of our default posture, but that's not what Paul means here. He's not telling his readers to live in a manner that earns the gift. He's telling his readers to live in a manner that reflects the gift that they've been given. Okay? What's the gift, though? The gift is being united to God through Christ. It's the calling to which you've been called. If you're a believer, you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. This is from chapter 2, right? It says, this is not from yourselves. This is God's gift. Remember when we talked about it in in Ephesians chapter 2. Before entrusting yourself to Christ, your works pointed to sin's work in you and it revealed spiritual death. Remember that? But then afterward, in Christ, as a believer, you've been recreated in Christ to to walk, as Paul says, in the good deeds, the good works that God's prepared for you to do. If you've entrusted yourself to Christ, God's work is, is, is in you. Your work now points to God's work in you, and that reveals eternal life, no longer death. You are now living in a way that reflects the gift you've been given freely, rather than living in a way that's trying to earn something you can never earn. Now, the work of unity is good work that God has prepared in advance for every believer to do. No one is exempt from this work if you're in Christ. The purpose of that work is to glorify God by showing the world his power at work in us. Remember we talked about this last week, that that as God displays his glory in the church and we see that, then naturally as the church we, we... simply just display that glory to the world. We don't create that glory. God, God is plenty good at that all by himself. And so our work reflects the work of God. It never earns it, never replaces it. We're reminded of this at the end of chapter 3. Paul finishes his prayer for all believers by saying this in verse 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Jesus reveals the glory of the Father. Who does he reveal that glory to? He reveals it to the church. And since Jesus is the head of the church, that means that the church that's living in submission to his headship will also then reveal the glory of the Father to one another and to the world as we display his power at work in us. We display God's glory as God's church when we see God's glory displayed in God's church, right? Through Christ. 
Now, last week I, re- I read Jesus' prayer for all, all believers in John 17, and I emphasized that God's love for us is the same love that he has for his one and only son. I want to read that passage again, and this time I want to emphasize the unity that Jesus prays for, but I want you to see, as, we, as, we, as you hear it, how that love and unity work together, okay? So listen carefully to Jesus' prayer, again in John 17, 20 through 26. He says, I pray not only for these, referring to his 12 disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, you are in me, so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given to me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you've given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they've known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love that you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called is to live in such a way that it helps the world know and believe that God sent his son in love to rescue sinners from themselves and to unite them to the Father and to one another. It's to live in such a way that that people see us and notice that there's a greater power at work that's keeping us together and, and, and they say this is different than anything we know. That paves the way then for us to sow seeds of the gospel. We not only show it to them by by the way that we love one another, but we tell it to them by proclaiming the good news of a God who loves us in spite of ourselves and brings us together, unites us together with him and with each other through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. The purpose of unity with one another is to glorify God by showing the world his power to bring everything together in Jesus. Ephesians 1.10. When we're committed to that purpose, it's going to affect the way we deal with one another when unity is threatened. Now, you don't have to look very long to find ways that unity is being threatened in the church at large. I can say just a few catchphrases. COVID-19, right? Racial tension. Politics. These are just a few of the things that brothers and sisters in Christ are allowing to fracture their relationships and and divide them in the church. Who would have thought that a piece of cloth over someone's face could create such a barrier between two hearts? Even if these things were no longer points of tension for us, we need to understand there will always be potential for conflict because we live in the already and the not yet of our sanctification. Our sin has already been paid for. We're free in Christ, but we've not yet been fully conformed into Christ's likeness, and that means that our remaining sin still has the potential to trip us up and disrupt us in our relationships and our unity with one another. In fact, I would argue that the closer we come to one another in relationship, the greater potential we have for conflict because we're closer to each other's mess, right? And everyone who's in a family is like, yep. One unknown author put it this way in a poem. He said, to live with the saints we love, or to, sorry, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. 
But to live below with the saints we know, now that's a different story. And we all give a hearty amen. And we laugh. While, while simultaneously trying to put the, the reality aside that they have to live with us too. Right? Even though disunity seems inevitable in the body of Christ, we need to understand this. It doesn't mean that it's acceptable in the body of Christ. We don't just give into it and say, well, this is how it's going to be. We need to understand the dangers of disunity and make every effort to keep it. When we devote ourselves to the purpose of unity, when we're committed to glorifying God in our relationships with each other and pointing people to Jesus, we won't accept disunity and we will work. We will do the necessary work to maintain it, to resolve it. Now that sounds good, right? But that's not easy to do, is it? Yes, I truly want to bring God glory through my relationships with others, but I also want to bring me glory through my relationships with others. I'm, pr- I'm probably not the only one. I'm getting a lot of blank stares, though. I'll check with you guys here online. Can you relate to me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got thumbs ups here, okay? Sometimes my motivation to resolve conflict is more to get the other person to admit that they're wrong and I was right, right? That's not funny. I'm just kidding. In my own mind, in my own mind, I only do that because I know Kitchell enough. In my own mind, I want to exalt my position. I want to blame them for the conflict because they don't agree with me. What does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like the arguments in the world right now? And when I do that, I treat forgiveness like a weapon instead of a gift. I withhold it until I get what I want from them rather than extend it freely and seek it out for my own wrongdoings. Or, or for, for, yeah, and, and seek it out for my own wrongdoings. Can you relate to that? Have you ever used forgiveness as a weapon? How is that different than what the world does? It's not. And as a church, we are called to be different than the world. How does that reveal a greater power at work in us? It doesn't. So then how do we devote ourselves to glorifying God through our unity with one another? We pursue the postures that maintain unity. That help us keep it. Read, uh, look at verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. All humility and gentleness. Not some, every bit of it. Filled to the fullness to use Paul's words in, uh, earlier in the letter, with humility and gentleness, all humility and gentleness. Now, I don't know about you, but that's always how I approach conflict with others. Total humility, complete gentleness, right? I never, I've never done this. This is just hypothetical. I've never made up entire conversations with someone without actually having a real conversation with them, where in my head I win every single argument and dismantle all of theirs. 
and make them look like a fool and me look like the hero. I've never done that. That's pretty much usually how I start to work through conflict. All humility and gentleness, all. How is that even possible? The pagan culture of Paul's day valued pride, not humility. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? But that's not all. Look, at, there's more. He says uh, uh, they also need to have patience. They need to bear with one another in love. They need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How can anyone do all of that? It's a really tall order. But there's a crucial phrase here that we can't overlook. We, we absolutely need to see this. It's a phrase that gives us hope that we can actually walk in these postures, that this isn't just platitudes that Paul is giving us. Look what he says about unity in verse 3. It's of the Spirit. We do not create unity. We need to understand the Bible's perspective on our humanity. In our humanity, we are rebellious by nature. We hated God, and God loved us, and he gave himself to us through his son. The Holy Spirit is the one that creates unity. We are only able to keep that unity with one another to the degree that we submit ourselves to the Spirit's ongoing work in our lives. These postures, they sound familiar, don't they? Galatians 5 repeats them for us. These are fruit of the Spirit. This is evidence that the Spirit actually is in you and is doing work in you. They're things that God grows in us as we humble ourselves before him. They're also postures reflected in the gospel. Though he is God, Jesus humbled himself, just like we read in Philippians 2 for the prayer this morning. He died a humiliating death on the cross for sinners. In gentleness, he calls all who are weary and heavy burdened by their own sin to come to him in faith and find rest in him. Think of God's kindness and his patience to bear with us in our rebellion against him. To send his son in love in in the perfect life of obedience that, that we should have lived, but we didn't. To die the death for our sins that we should have died, but, but we didn't. And to wait until the, the third day to rise from the grave so that he could prove his power over sin and death and give us eternal victory over those things through our faith in him. Look at God's plan of redemption as a whole. It is his humility, his gentleness, his patience to bear with us in love. And his sufficient, completed, accomplished effort to unite us to himself and make peace with us through Christ and by his spirit. It just oozes these things. The more we dwell on the wonders of the gospel, the more we'll be humbled by the gospel, and the more we'll make every effort then to keep the unity of the spirit by pursuing the postures necessary to do so. If I were to ask you right now how God has been gentle with you this past week, could you give me an answer? What if I asked you how he's been patient with you this morning? Or how he showed love for you yesterday by bearing with you in your sins and your weaknesses and in your failures. Can you tell me about the ways that you see God's eagerness to be one with you in the spirit? How does Jesus continue to be your peace? 
if you can't answer these questions, then you're not ready to approach someone with whom you have conflict. You won't resolve it. Because you won't be thinking about God's grace in your life. Instead, you'll start thinking about why you're right and why they're wrong. And that leads to pride, not humility. You'll dwell on what they've done to you, and that leads to anger, not gentleness. You'll want them to admit their faults, and that leads to frustration, not patience. How many times have you confronted with somebody and you're like, man, you nailed it. Thank you. It's usually met with opposition the first time, isn't it? And the 75th time, sometimes. You want to punish them for what you think that they did wrong, and that leads to quick judgment, not bearing with them in love. You'll make every effort to cut them off instead of making every effort to keep the unity in the spirit by pursuing peace with them. You have to see how God has already unified you to himself and to others before you can make any effort, let alone every effort, to keep that unity in the spirit. This means that you have to keep the gospel in view on a daily basis. Do you know, I hope you do by now, that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It is every day for God's church. Not just on Sunday mornings. Every single day. I was once God's enemy because of my sin. I was self-sufficient. I was self-reliant. But in his love, in his patience, he showed me that I was really self-destructive. And in gentleness, God changed my heart and he made me his child when I confessed my need for Jesus. And I believe that he sacrificed for me that my sins deserved God's wrath, but Christ stepped in. I found peace with God through Christ and only through Christ. And now I'm bound forever to him by his spirit who lives in me. Is that your reality? If not, then unity with Christ is where you need to start. There's no chance to be united to someone else. And you do that through faith and repentance. What's repentance? We throw that word around. We need to define it. Repentance is a change of mind. You believe something that you didn't believe before, namely that your sins have separated you from God, that you need to be saved from his righteous wrath against you because of your sins against him, and that his love for you, in his love for you, God sent his son, Jesus, to rescue you by dying on the cross in your place and rising from the grave to make you righteous and reconcile you to the Father. Repentance is also a change of heart. You love something that you didn't love before, Namely, Christ himself. And you hate what you also, or you also hate what you used to love, your, your sin. Yes, we still stumble in it. Yes, we still run to it sometimes. But we no longer love it. And finally, repentance is a change of behavior. You do things that you didn't do before. Like make every effort to keep the unity with others rather than to divide yourself from them. Repentance is an ongoing everyday thing. It's not a one-time ask Jesus into your heart thing. It's a way of life in Christ. And so 
If that has not happened for you, this is where you need to start, to confess your need for Jesus, to trust in his finished work for you, and to turn to him. To repent and to believe is what the Bible says. And once you're united with God through his spirit, only then do you have the ability to keep that unity with others through his spirit because now you share the same Holy Spirit. Don't we forget that sometimes? Don't we forget that, that there's a, 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 a presence that God lives in us through his spirit? And when I look at someone else that's a brother or a sister in the Lord, I am not left to my own resources to maintain that relationship and to grow it in Christ. Praise God. We have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the one who empowers us to make every effort in humility, in gentleness, in patience, and in love. So the gospel is fresh in your mind and in your heart and you're in submission to the Spirit, then what does it actually look like to approach another believer in these postures and begin resolving conflict and keeping that unity? As you continue to look for the gospel's work in your life, you need to pray for God to help you see the gospel at work in their life as well. When, someone, when a brother or sister in Christ is in sin, they don't suddenly become an unbeliever. God is continuing to work his grace out in their life. It's there. We need to pray to see it. That was Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3. That the Spirit would give us insight. Before you ever come to that person with a list of ways that they've sinned against you, you need to first come to the Lord with that same list and ask him to help you see how he's covered those sins with his grace. It'll help you narrow down the things that you truly need to talk about in order to bring resolve with that other person. Love actually and really does cover a multitude of sins. There are some things that we don't need to drive into the ground with people. There are some things that we do need to talk about. And still before you share those things with that person, humility will first help you admit your own faults to them. Whether it's something that you've done to sin against them or simply just a weakness that you have in bearing with them in love. <clears throat> and so when it's actually time to open your mouth, then you're not going to yell at them. You're not going to go on the offensive. You're not going to tweet something about them or throw something out on Facebook. Or, or Listen, please do not just text them either. I, I just want to say that's foolishness. If you're in conflict with a brother and sister in Christ, that conflict needs to be resolved face to face. And so we say something like this. This isn't a script, but this, this is reflective of our heart's posture. Say, look, I want you to know that I love you and that I'm not going anywhere. And I don't want you to go anywhere. I know I need God's grace all the time. And here are the things that I've, I've realized that I've done to hurt you. Here are the things that I realized I'm weak in. Here are the, here are the ways that I, I take our relationship for granted. And I want you to forgive me for those things. Or I want you to know that I need your help to see the gospel in those areas. But I do want you to know that I feel wounded by you in these ways. 
But I know that because we share the same Holy Spirit, it's ultimately God's kindness and grace that leads us to repentance and shows us these things and helps us forgive each other. And so I want you to know that if you disagree with me on any of these things that I want to share with you, I'm willing to listen to your side. And I'll try my hardest not to strike them down. But to see what truth is in them and receive that. I want to listen. I want to talk. I want to do those things together because I believe that God will bring healing and restoration if we both submit to him and trust him to do it. Making every effort to keep unity doesn't mean avoiding difficult and uncomfortable conversations. It means we engage with them in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in love, in peace. And remember that all those are postures that that we pursue together, whether we approach someone else with our concerns or whether someone comes to us with concerns. You need to make every effort to keep the unity of, of the Spirit when you've been wronged and when you've done wrong. When both of you pursue these postures in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, then unity can be restored. Only then. So let's say conflict is resolved, unity is restored. We understand how to restore unity after it's been broken, but, but how do we keep the unity that's already there, Right? Yes, we're prone to wander into disunity, but there is unity there. It's provided for us by the Spirit. How do we keep that unity that's already there? How do we, in other words, prevent disunity? How do we be proactive and not just reactive? There's good news. Paul helps us in verses 4 through 6. He says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. How do we prevent this unity? We stay focused on the essentials that unify us. There's one body in Christ. In chapter 2, Paul reminded his readers that Christ has made Jewish and Gentile believers one in him, and he's torn down the wall of hostility between them. He's reconciled both of them to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. It's super important. It's not Jewish body and Gentile body. It's one body in Christ. The same is true for us. As those who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we are united together as his one body despite our diversity. There's one spirit of Christ. Again, chapter 2, Paul says that both Jewish and Gentile believers have access to God through the same spirit. God didn't give one spirit to the Jews and one spirit to the Gentiles. The same is true for us. Just as the human body has the one spirit that gives it life, so too does the one body of Christ have the one Holy Spirit that gives it life. If you're a believer, the same Holy Spirit who lives in you lives in every other believer, every other person who truly believes in Christ, even if they believe in tongues and miracles, even if they're reformed and you're not, even if you believe there's going to be a rapture and they don't, or when that happens. There's one hope of Christ. 
At the end of chapter 1, Paul prays that his readers would know the hope to which they've been called. That hope is the hope of eternal resurrection in Christ. All of this points forward to the day where we see Christ physically. It's coming. Titus says that it's the, uh, as we patiently wait for the, the hope of the glory yet to be revealed. If you're a believer, you have this hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's absolute confidence in the promises of God. The Jews don't have one hope. The Gentiles don't have another hope. Through their faith in Christ, they have the same hope of spending forever in God's presence and in perfect unity with him. The wall of hostility has been torn down. In, in eternity, there's no section for the Jews and section for the Gentiles. We're together. And the same is true for us. Regardless of what you've done in this life, if you've entrusted yourself to Christ, then Christ now is your hope of eternal glory. You can now have absolute confidence in the resurrection to come, even as you live a resurrected life now. And in our life of unity together as one body in the one Holy Spirit is a reflection of the hope that we have together in Christ. This is a microcosm albeit imperfect, but growing in perfection through the Spirit and by the Word. This is a microcosm of what's to come. There is one Lord who is Christ. In every single chapter of Ephesians, you can find a reference to Christ as Lord. Every single chapter. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Jesus Christ is the risen and exalted Lord. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, seated at the right hand of the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That especially includes us. As believers, if Christ is your Savior, listen, He is your Lord. You can't separate those two things. There's no asking Jesus to save you and then living your own life afterwards. For both the Jew, excuse me, if, you, if you've put your hope in Christ, then you'll be compelled by His love to live in submission to Him, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a layperson, whether you're a child or an adult, a man or a woman, a blue-collar worker, a white-collar worker, it doesn't matter. As his one body, we live together in submission to Christ, who is our one head. There's one faith in Christ. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him, right? For both the Jew and the Gentile, the way to the Father is not through sacrifice and offerings and and, and ritual things. It's through Jesus Christ and faith in his life, death, and resurrection. The same is true for us. As followers of Christ, we have put our trust in his finished work and not in any work of our own. We're justified through faith in Christ alone. Our salvation rests securely on him. We hold to the biblical Christian faith 
This is what Paul is getting at. Any faith that compromises or changes the gospel is not Christian faith. It's not biblical faith. It's false religion. There is one baptism in Christ. Now, baptism is an outward symbol of being united with Christ and his body of believers through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. Are you catching the refrain here? In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, For just as, one, the, one, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. Same is true for us. As believers, we've been buried with Christ in his death. We've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life through his resurrection. So physical baptism is an outward expression of an inward union with Christ and one another through his spirit as his body. It's a symbolic act of a spiritual union. This is true whether you're sprinkled or dunked. Mode of baptism isn't as important as the meaning. Finally, there is one God and Father of all. What does Paul say? He's above all. He's through all. He's in all. God is sovereign. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's just completely above everything. And yet, in Christ, he humbled himself and he came low. He established his plan of redemption and accomplished it in Christ, and now he applies it to us through his spirit. The language Paul uses here in verse 6 is uh, reminiscent of the Hebrew Shema. It was a Jewish prayer that they prayed. Deuteronomy 6, 4 is one of the instances. It starts out here as in, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are inseparable because they are one God in three persons. Not three gods. One God in three persons. Together they give life to everything. Together they rule over all things. Together they work salvation for all who believe. Together they are one, and in them we are one. As believers in Christ, we've been united to the Father through the sacrifice of the Son in the power of the Spirit. And we've been united to one another in the same way. These, these ones that Paul mentions here in these last few verses, these are the essentials of the gospel. These are the things that bring unity to local bodies of Christ, even if they, dis- different, even if they differ on lesser issues. Liturgical, contemporary, megachurch, house church, infant baptism, believer's baptism, complementarian, egalitarian, Calvinist, Arminian, denominational, non-denominational. We love to just divide into these things. And there are some things that we do need to divide over, and we'll get to that in a moment. But as long as we hold to the same gospel, we can have unity, and we should make every effort to keep it then with our brothers and sisters who may view and who may do some things differently but still hold to these essential truths. But we can't be united to those who differ on gospel essentials. We can't be united to those who say there is no resurrection 
because that fundamentally changes the gospel. We can't be united to those who say salvation is by faith in Christ and by good works because that fundamentally changes the gospel. We can't be united to those who say there are many paths to God because that fundamentally changes the gospel. Now, there are more details as far as essentials go. We've covered some of those. One God and three persons. You can't separate the Trinity. You can't eliminate the virgin birth. Things like that. Those are wrapped up in these, in these ones that Paul talks about. The gospel is where we find unity because the gospel reveals the one who unites us together. And who is that? It's Christ. One author summarizes it in this helpful way. Where Christ is truly preached, there is the gospel. And where the gospel is truly believed, there is the church. If you truly believe the gospel, then you are a member of God's family and a part of the body of Christ. You are a part of his church along with everyone else who truly believes the gospel. And the glory of God is revealed in his church when we display his power through our unity together with one another. But because we all have sin that remains, we can easily drift toward disunity. We know this. We don't create unity, but we are charged to keep it and to make every effort to do so. So, church, let's devote ourselves to God's glory, not our own. Let's pursue humility. Let's pursue gentleness and patience and love. Let's hold fast to the essentials of the gospel and let's then make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace so that the world looks at us and goes, they're doing something different. What is it? And that we can make Christ known. Because guess what? God still has more to bring into his church. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the unity that we have first with you in Christ. We thank you that you've sealed us with your spirit for the day of redemption where we'll receive the inheritance that we didn't earn but have been freely given by the Father who loves us and gave his son up for us and who will along with him give us all things. Lord, we pray for our hearts that you would keep us in Christ, that you would help us to keep one another in Christ, that we would, as we wander, be drawn back by the majesty of the gospel, by the wonder of a God who loves us, who came to us, who gave himself for us. Help us, Lord, to help each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives. And in doing so, strive for unity together with one another. We ask for the Spirit's help because we need it. And we pray that we do it according to your word and for your glory. And that others would come to Christ as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.